Jude chapter 1 this evening. Jude chapter 1. The one and only chapter of Jude. We'll uh, continue our study here in this uh, short book. We started last week and and uh, we'll finish up next week. We tend to downplay hell and God's wrath being poured out on people in our day. I think part of the reason that, that it happens in our culture is because our view of God is often based uh, on our view of our, our Father, our earthly Father. And in the past, fathers were more disciplinarians and strongly opposed to defiant behavior. Today, however, dads tend to be, want to be more of their kid's best friend. And so there's no limit to what a child can do. They can, they, they can just do whatever they want. We just want to make sure that the kids are, are happy. And so based, because of that, I think sometimes that, that shapes our view of God and what He is like. And I recognize that there are two ditches that we ought to avoid here, that we should not be overly authoritarian when it comes to our children. There, there is certainly a line in which we should not cross. But I also recognize that we are projecting in our culture our view of God, and often it's a wrong one. And we do this uh, to our own detriment. We see God as some kind of grandfatherly figure who doesn't care about our sin and would never put a person in hell. And it's a real shame to see God in in that light. Rob Bell of Mars Hill Church here in Michigan recently wrote a book called Love Wins. Perhaps you have heard him make the rounds on the latest talk shows. In his book, he argues that all people, all people will eventually make it to heaven because love wins. God could never be so unloving to put any person in hell. God's primary Character, it seems to Rob Bell, is, is that he is loving. And because of that, he cannot punish a person in that way. What we're going to see here in Jude is completely opposite of what Rob Bell teaches in his book. And if you follow our culture and you have the belief that that there is no hell or it's only for the really bad people, then this passage here, I can assure you, will shake your confidence. It will shake you at the core. And I think Jude does that for a purpose. He wants us to see that, that there is judgment and judgment is real. And that that needs to be a part of how we think about God and how we explain God to other people. And the key word there was part. It needs to be a part of it. doesn't mean that that's all we talk about when it comes to God, because certainly God is loving, right? But, but judgment certainly should be a part of how we talk about God. Let's look at verses 5 through 16, the passage which we will be covering. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, 
indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by winds. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. These are the grumblers finding fault following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. In verses 1-4, through Jude showed us that if the gospel is to be loved, then it must be preserved. This week we're going to see that if the gospel is to be preserved, it must be defended against false teachers. Jude here gives a warning against false teachers. Remember, as we're going through this passage, this, the warnings here are very strong. And, and, and if, if you uh, are not firm in your uh, belief in Christ, then it will shake you. And I think it's meant to do so. And even if you are firm in your belief in Christ, it still will, will, uh, will cause you to think. And I think the, because these warnings are so strong, Jude begins and ends with reassuring, by reassuring believers that God is ultimately the one who will keep them to the end. Look at verse 1 with me. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So Jude begins his epistle by saying, believers are kept by Jesus Christ. It is Christ who keeps them till the end. And Christ has the power to do so, and so we don't have to fear that we will ever be lost. Look at verse 24. He ends the epistle in a similar way by reassuring believers that it is God who keeps them. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. There's never been a time where God has been without power, he is, where He has not had the power to keep you until the end, both before all time and now 
and even forever, He has the power to keep you. He has the authority to do so. And so Jude begins and ends his epistle by saying, be of good courage. Okay, It is Christ who keeps you. But what he's going to do here in verses 5-16 through 16 is he's going to use some strong warnings to shake us and to make sure that we are on the right path. In order to understand what Jude is talking about, we need to see a description of these people of whom he is speaking. Verse 4, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. These people are godless people who actually take the grace of God and use it as a license for immorality. Okay? They have actually taken the doctrine of eternal security too far. They've said, if God secures me all the way till the end, then I can do as I please. If God's grace is highlighted in my sin, then I'm going to sin. And so Jude wants to make it clear that that is, that is foolishness when it comes to the ways of God. Did you notice in verse 15 the, the future of these people? and how they are described to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. There's no come-as-you-are type language here. The repetition, of, the repetition that you see in this verse helps to emphasize God's view of these false teachers, that He's not hey, come on in, it's okay, I'll just accept you whether you accept me or not, whether you accept what I've told you or not. So he's speaking specifically about apostates, which simply means people who have defected from the faith. They've actually turned away from God. So he begins in verses 5-7 through of our passage by giving three historical examples that we would be familiar with regarding apostasy and judgment. At least two of them we're familiar with. First one is in verse 5, and that is unbelieving Israel. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So, in verse 3, Jude had said, I felt the necessity to write to you so that you would contend for the faith. Here he says, I desire to remind you, he, he ultimately wanted to talk about their common salvation that they enjoyed. But because of the false teachers, he felt, he, he felt it necessary to remind them about, about maintaining their, their walk with God, about maintaining the doctrine that, they had want, that had been delivered to them. Notice that second line there, though you know all things once for all. I find that very interesting because similar to what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.12 where he says that I, I desire to remind you the things that you already know. What I understand from that is that I will never run out of material as a pastor. That if I were ever to finish preaching through the entire Bible, I would start over and do it again because I desire to remind you what you already know or I desire to remind you the things that you have known. 
that part of the pastor's responsibility is to remind the people of what we already know. And why do that? Once we get it, don't we just get it? Don't we keep it? Those of you who have children understand that the repetition is necessary for learning. And that there's never a time where we have arrived. We continually need to have the Scriptures taught to us and to be reminded about the things we already know. Notice the example of apostasy and judgment. What we'll see in each one of these examples is the apostasy that they had committed, that is the turning from the faith, and also the judgment that they received. Okay, notice the apostasy. After saving a people out of the land, land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Here, Jude doesn't actually give it. He implies what it is because it was such a well-known uh, event. He doesn't tell what the apostasy was. But it was that they did not believe. You see that at the end of the verse. Subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Hebrews 3.12 says that apostasy is departing from the living God. It is having an unbelieving heart. It is tasting of the things of God and then finally turning away. In the middle of the verse it says that the Lord... other. Um, other manuscripts actually have the word Jesus. In fact, the earliest manuscripts have the word Jesus, and so it could be read like this. That Jesus, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed. Now that makes it a little bit more difficult of a reading to think that Jesus would have done this, but it is in keeping with how the New Testament writers understood Jesus' place in the Old Testament. That is, that the Christ was a part of what was going on in the Old Testament. And that, like Jesus talked to the men on the road to Emmaus, He showed Himself from the Scriptures where the Scriptures spoke of Him. And so that would, that would be in keeping with that. So they, these people of Israel wandered from God, even though they had tasted of, of his, his works and His goodness, they did not believe ultimately. They had a heart of unbelief. And notice the judgment that they receive says that the Lord subsequently destroyed them. He destroyed them. Now, what exactly, what, what event are we speaking of? What was it that caused judgment to come on Israel? Well, specifically, I think he's referring to when the twelve spies went to Canaan and to see if they were going to be able to conquer this land, if they were going to be able to possess this land. And when they got there, they saw the sons of Anak who were uh, part of the Nephilim, some of the giants in the land. And ten of the spies came back and conveyed what they had seen and their evaluation of, of whether or not they were able to uh, take over the, this, this land. And of course, the, the people followed the ten spies instead of the two, Joshua and Caleb, and as a result, God, God decided that everyone 20 years and older would die in the wilderness. That they would not be able to see the promised land. Only those who had believed, Joshua and Caleb, and the, the, the children, 19 and under, would be able to see this, this land of promised, promise. And so Jude begins with this first familiar example for us to show us that, that we ought to be warned 
that judgment is real and it will come upon those who do not finally believe. They will be judged. The second example is less well known and in fact it's a very difficult verse to interpret. Let's look at it. Verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds until are under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now the debate in this verse is what exactly happened to these angels. There are three possibilities, I think three legitimate possibilities here. And remember, the, the, the similarity seems to be the apostasy of these historical figures and the judgment to follow. Okay, So that's what we saw in Israel. They apostatized and they were judged. Here, think about that as we think about how to interpret these verses. Okay, what, what sin did the angels commit? Some suggest that this sin is the sin of all non-elect angels when all the angels fell. Apparently, one-third of the angelic host followed Satan. They abandoned their original holy state. Remember, God had created everything very good, Genesis 1.31. But the problem with this understanding is that, that uh, we would have to ask the question, why didn't all the angels, why didn't all the demons get punished and put into this eternal judgment? See, did you see what kind of judgment they had in the second part of the verse? He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness. So it seems as if they're already in judgment. They're already receiving judgment for what they have done. But is there not demons even now? Have there not been demons throughout fallen human history? So the point is that why were some demons punished to this judgment and others were not? So if, if, if it was that sin of, of simply the fall, then it doesn't seem to make sense. So I would say that there has to be a second abandonment. It is true that they ultimately denied God there, but there has to be a second abandonment. And that's why others suggest that, uh, and here's the second interpretation, that it, it's referring to Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And we don't have time to turn there, but there it says that the sons of men took wives for themselves and committed adultery. Notice verse 7. They Here in Jude chapter 1, they, they use verse 7 to help support this idea that angels actually somehow became human and had sexual relations with humans. Or they didn't become human, but they took on the form of human. And so that you have some sort of bizarre... Uh, bizarre cohabitation between angels and humans. And they base, they base that on uh, verse 7 and also Genesis 6. Let's read verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they are in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now there's no debate in verse 7 that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is the sin of immorality. Correct? So they would say verse 7 follows and it says in the same way as these. So they would say that verse 7 actually points back to verse 6 and says that in the same way as Sodom and Gomorrah committed gross immorality, so did the angels somehow commit gross immorality with humans. 
and they would argue that the sons of men in Genesis 6 refers to angels because apparently the sons of men is used that way of angels in other passages of Scripture. And so somehow there's this bizarre cohabitation with human women. But I would take, I would disagree with that interpretation and, um, and, um, and just to kind of... Uh, to give you a little bit of a, a heads up or a little bit of notification of what is going on here. My, my uh, New Testament professor at the seminary claims that this verse, Jude 1.6, is the hardest to interpret in all of Scripture because of the, uh, the structure of the, the context around it and the, the different possibilities and without knowing all of what had happened uh, besides what Jude records here. I would say that the problem with that second interpretation is that it doesn't take into account verses 5, 6, and 7. Remember, was this, would we say that the sin of the people of Egypt was the same sin as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? I would say no. We, they didn't commit gross immorality. Uh, at least that was, wasn't what they were punished for. They were punished for believing the spies, following their... their uh, uh, their their lack of faith. And so we wouldn't argue that Israel was judged for their gross immorality. So I would say that verse 7 could have a possible understanding of in the same way as these, in the same way as the, an, the angels in verse 6 and the people of Israel in, in, in uh, verse 5, that they received judgment. Remember, the main thing that we're looking at is not the specific sin. The reason Jude is bringing these up is to show that they have turned from God. They have turned from the faith. He wants to point that out, not necessarily the specificity of their sin. They've turned from God and the judgment that follows. That's his point. And not to mention the just bizarre seeming impossibility of an angel cohabiting with a human. It, the second interpretation doesn't seem to, to follow. So I would say that there is a second abandonment that we don't have recorded. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. It seems as if Peter is talking about the same uh, situation, but he doesn't give much more information. But we will look at this. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, and then so on, he says, then, and then he uses the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 6, um, basically saying that the same sort of idea, that if they received judgment for their apostasy, then why wouldn't anyone else? So the specific sin in chapter 2, verse 4, is not stated doesn't say what the angels do, do, but it seems as if there are angels that are in eternal bonds right now. You remember when Jesus was healing the demoniac, the one who was at the tombs cutting himself? It was, it was a man who was possessed by a legion of demons and, um, and he even tried to kill himself on a couple of occasions. Remember when Jesus went to expel the, those demons from that man? What did they ask him? If you remember the end of the story, they go into the swine, but what did what did they ask him not to do? 
They said, don't send me into the abyss, Luke 8.31 tells us. The abyss is the place where Satan will be bound for a thousand years during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ here on the earth before he is risen to be judged. So it is a place that somehow maintains or holds demons. It keeps them from getting out and roaming around the earth. And so these demons ask Jesus specifically, don't send us to the abyss like you have sent others to the abyss. Okay, so apparently we do have people or we do have demons who have been judged. And so turn back to Jude because I think his point here is no matter the interpretation, his point, no matter which interpretation you choose, not to say that the interpretation is not important, but whichever uh, is the correct one, premature punishment comes as a result of turning from God. So Jude is is making a very strong statement here if you consider what he is saying. He's saying this. If God has power to bind angels who are more powerful than human, right? We know of demon possession. We've read about it in the Scriptures. We've even heard of current uh, acts of demon possession. Okay, So we know that demons are more powerful than humans. And here's what Jude's saying. If God... Has, has power to bind them who are more powerful than humans, and He does, then will not God hold humans to account who have turned from the faith? Who have turned away from the living God? Will God not hold them to account and judge them as well? The third example is found in verse 7. Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they are in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The apostasy of Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, is their gross immorality. They went after strange flesh, also known as homosexuality. And uh, it's no coincidence that our English word sodomy includes the name of the city that participates in this type of practice. You can read all about their perversion in Genesis chapter 19. It's very sickening to read. The apostasy was gross immorality. The judgment that we see here is that they are undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. What Jude is doing here, I think, is he's showing us that Sodom and Gomorrah really received a foretaste, a a taste beforehand of what eternal, eternal punishment is like. Because of their sin, God rained down fire and brimstone on their city. And that will ultimately happen to those who reject God fully and finally in a place called hell. And this punishment in hell will be irreversible and forever. So it's no wonder that Jude is so concerned about people understanding real judgment. So he gives three examples here in these first few verses. If a person turns from the living God, they should never think that they can escape the long arm of God's judgment. He may not judge them immediately, but He will judge them finally. Now he gives a description of of what these men are like, what these apostates are like in verses 8-16. through He begins by showing their slanderous speech. Verse 8, Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. These 
ones who have turned away from the living God have by dreaming. They were godless men. Either they were dreaming, they were claiming to have some special revelation like Job's friend did in in, uh, Job chapter 4. He said, yeah, I had this dream and this gives me uh, confidence that this is real. Or it could have been that they were dreaming in the sense that they were out of touch with reality. That they didn't recognize the real uh, truth of God and that judgment was real. And it says that they defile the flesh. Verse 8. Look at verse 23 because we get a little bit of better understanding of what that means. Verse 22 says, And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. They are so corrupt, Jude says, that it's as if that they even stain the very clothes that they wear. They are so corrupt. Verse 8 also says that they reject authority. And then that they revile or they speak abuse against angelic majesties. We'll see what this means in verse 9. Look at verse 9. It says, But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So while Michael, the highest of all angels, the archangel, when he went to rebuke Satan, he did not do it on the basis of his own authority, but he did it on the basis of God's authority. He said, The Lord rebuke you. And so what Jude is saying is that although Michael, the highest of archangels, was very careful about this and not reviling, speaking abuse even against an evil angel, these apostates are speaking against evil angels. Or they're speaking against angels, I should say. And so this example is a little bit unclear. Verse 9 is, is an example where Michael the archangel spoke with uh, the devil over the body of Moses. It's not recorded in any of our inspired Bible, but it is recorded in the Assumption of Moses, which is an apocryphal book. Now, this doesn't mean that 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 gives credibility to uh, the apocryphal book in the sense that it is inspired. It does give it credibility in the sense that it's true, right? Um just because a person quotes from a non-biblical source does not make it biblical. Okay, So don't be confused here about what Jude is doing. Imagine that the Bible was being written today and Paul quoted from one of our American history books. Okay, If he were to quote from an American history book, he's not saying that this American history book is now inspired. He's simply using it to either illustrate or confirm or to show from... from real history that this this is what he's talking about. Okay, so if someone quotes if a scripture writer quotes from a non-biblical source it doesn't necessarily make that source biblical. So if Michael the highest of archangels did not rebuke an angel, then why would anyone else think they could get away with it? That's what they did in verse 8 at the end. It says they reviled angelic majesties. Notice the result of their sin in verse 10. But these men revile, again, means to speak abuse against. They revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. 
They are like, Jude says, animals who just do things instinctively. Animals don't consider what's about to happen. They don't think ahead. They are naive. And Jude says, these apostates' actions are like unreasoning animals. They do it without thinking. And ultimately, their immorality is self-destructive. Their reviling is self-destructive. Notice their character in verse 11. He uses three Old Testament examples in verse 11 and then five graphic metaphors in verses 12 and 13 to show what their actions are like. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. He begins with a woe oracle, similar to what you read about in the Old Testament prophets. And also Jesus would say to the Pharisees, Woe to you, Pharisees. It is a claim of a judgment that should come upon those who follow these people. So here's three examples of people not to follow. Cain, who murdered his brother because his offering was rejected. He envied his brother because he wanted God to accept him and not his brother. Balaam, a second example of someone whom we should not follow. That greed consumed him to the point where he was willing to, to, to lead Israel into immorality in order for him to get more money. Third example is the people of Korah. Remember, these are the ones who were swallowed up by the earth because they came to Moses and Aaron and said, we don't think you're speaking the things of God. We don't think you're speaking on behalf of God. Moses said, if that's true, then uh, let the earth not swallow you up. Of course, he tells all of Israel to get out of the way because God's going to swallow them up and, and all the people who rejected Him were going to be burned with fire. And that's, that's exactly what did happen. These are the type of people we need to watch out for. He can, continues in verses 12-13 through 13 by showing us five graphic metaphors of what their actions are like. Notice the first one in verse 12. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Think about this as with regard to to um, driving a ship in the middle of the water and you come upon a reef that is hidden below, there, there is great, um, there, there, there's this great impression that, that everything is going to be smooth sailing, right? And then out, out from nowhere comes this hidden reef to, to strike the hull of the ship and, and to cause major damage. And that's the way these apostates are. They, they offer hope they even participate in your love feasts. They give the impression that they're true Christians and that they can give great things for you, but all they care about, notice verse 12, they care about themselves. They don't care about you. They're trying to lead people astray because all they care about is themselves. They are like hidden reefs in the middle of the water. Second metaphor is that they are clouds without water carried by winds. If you're having a picnic or a parade, clouds without water could be a good thing, but for a society that depended heavily on agriculture, clouds without water would be like a false promise. 
You see the clouds coming in, hopeful that they will bring rain to water the fields and give you prosperity. Instead, they give you nothing. These false teachers seem to be very promising in their message. They seem to offer hope, but instead, there's no substance to it. They go on and offer no hope for you. They, They actually offer despair. Thirdly, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. They have leaves that that are promising. It looks as if fruit is going to come, but instead, nothing. They are doubly dead. They promise great hope, these apostates, but they provide nothing but judgment to those who follow them. Fourthly, wild waves of the sea casting their own shame like foam. Like waves, they continually crash on the shore with their filth so that the false teachers are continually bringing up moral perversion. They're actually inciting it within people who at one time wanted to follow God. And fifthly, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness is reserved. I think that word black could also be translated blackest as it is in other translations. Probably referring to a shooting star. It offers great light and great beauty for a while, then it goes off into the horizon and goes into oblivion. And that's the way these false teachers are. They show a spark of light for a while. You follow them and you follow them until they're gone. The blackest darkness, you can understand, is not referring to just they go off the scene and you don't see them anymore. It is that they are they have the blackest darkness reserved for them. Referring to what? To eternal punishment in hell for leading these people astray. So Jude says, watch out for them. They seem promising, but they offer no hope. Notice their destruction is prophesied in verses 14-16. through 16. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, Behold behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Jude says, it's no surprise to God. Their sins are very heinous and they're very detrimental to the, to the ways of God and to the advance of God's purposes in this world. But it's not a surprise to Him. It has been predicted by Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Now, this is not Enoch, the son of Cain. It's the Enoch who was not, who did not die it's this, in, the, uh, in the descendancy of Seth. And this prophecy also was from an apocryphal book from the book of Enoch. And he prophesied about the Lord's coming judgment. That the Lord would bring with His thousands of holy ones these to to come and bring judgment on these ungodly people for doing all these ungodly things in ungodly ways. Jesus is coming in judgment to convict sinners of their ungodliness. When we were convicted of our sin, 
we saw the uncertainty of our, or we saw the certainty of our guilt and the necessity to be redeemed. So it led us to repent of our sins. But this is not a conviction that leads to repentance. It's not the sense that Christ will come to convict all these ungodly people and they'll say, "Oh, now I understand. Now I'd like to turn to you." No, it is a conviction in the sense that He will prove that they are wrong, and it will be at a time when they don't have an opportunity to turn. He will prove them wrong for the purpose of punishment. And this conviction will happen in conjunction with, as it always has, the Word of God. Conviction always happens in conjunction with the Word of God. So I would fully expect Christ to have His NASB opened to these people, telling them where they have failed. I speak facetiously about this translation, but you understand what I'm saying. He will condemn them based on written revelation. And when He is through, they will realize that they are deserving of judgment. They may not be happy about it, but they will realize that He is Lord. That He has the right to enact justice on them for turning against Him. Four points of application as we close this evening. Number one, Jesus is coming as judge. Jesus is coming as judge. As believers, we look forward to the day when Christ will come to turn our faith into sight. When Christ comes as the Savior of the world. When, when Christ comes as judge. But what should our response be to this? We often think of judgment in terms of it's very far away or it's, it, it's not real. We sometimes believe the lie that that God will really not judge people for their sin. I mean, wasn't that Satan's part of Satan's plan or his uh, his scheme when he talked to, to Eve in the garden? He he minimized God's judgment. Did God really say that? I mean, the reason he's doing that is because he knows that it's actually going to be better for you. God's not going to judge you. You're not surely going to die, are you? And that's the nature of of our society is that they try to minimize the judgment of God. And Jude speaks very differently than our culture does. He shows us that God will judge. And He will judge the ungodly. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10-12, through 12, we read that there are none who are righteous. So, that means that all are deserving of judgment. All the good people in the room and in the world are, are, are doomed to an eternal condemnation apart from Christ. The only way that we can avoid that judgment, that we can be saved from the wrath to come, is if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, the only one who can take our judgment upon us, upon Himself. Jesus is coming as judge. So that means, number two, don't ever leave judgment out of your message of salvation. Don't ever leave, your, leave judgment out of your message of salvation. When you speak to others about who God is and what He demands of them, make sure that judgment is included. Some of the great lies of Satan include his minimization of judgment. It's not real or it's not near. So take your time. Live like you want to live. Live for yourself. 
Be immoral. It's okay. You have time to get back to God. He'll give you another opportunity. The worst news in the world is that we have been defiant against this holy God and we are unworthy of His favor. And instead of His favor, we deserve His wrath. Make sure people know that they are deserving of God's wrath. Christians included, we deserved God's wrath as well. And if we don't turn from our sin and trust in Christ alone, then we will be condemned to a real place of torment called hell. And it will be forever, and there's no reversing of our actions once we get to the next life. Tell them that the time to choose is now. The judgment is near. Stay away from the message that tries to emphasize Christ's love, but to the exclusion of His judgment. The message that comes from a book like Love Wins. Stay away from that kind of message. Oh, Jesus is so loving. He just wants to be your friend. It is true that Jesus is loving and that He does want to be your friend. But it's not true that there is no judgment. The way that you highlight His love, by the way, is by allowing the person to see what judgment they deserve and what judgment they're headed for. When a person sees what they deserve as a result of their sin, the love of Christ will be highlighted. It will be more beautiful than what they see it now, than by minimizing it or getting rid of the judgment message. See, because I deserved judgment, I realize now that Christ didn't deserve judgment. I was unjust and I deserved to be destroyed. I was poor. I deserved to be poor. He was just. He deserved to be rich. But He was rich. Uh, but, but He became poor so that you through His poverty could become rich. He took your place of judgment. And that is why He is so loving. That is the beauty of Christ's love when you see it contrasted with the judgment that you deserve and the judgment that He did not deserve, then you see the love of Christ as it should be seen. But if you minimize or get rid of the judgment part of your message to unbelievers and, and, and make it into a, a softer gospel, which is very popular in our society, by the way, we make it into a softer gospel people will be more ready to accept it if we don't talk about judgment, right? We'll soften, soften the edges. We'll sugarcoat it a little bit. We don't, they'll understand over time. We just need them to get to accept Jesus. But if they don't understand that they are being saved from judgment that they deserve, they will not ultimately accept the real Jesus. They've accepted another Gospel. Judgment is real and don't allow that message to be removed from your message of the Gospel. Number three, be warned if you are going astray. Jude gives us a strong warning here. Don't believe the lie that that little sin doesn't really matter. It's not a big deal. Christ has already paid for it. I can stop anytime I want. It's not going to get any worse than it is now. Regularly 
see yourself in light of your sin. Regularly see what your sin looks like to Christ. Regularly think about what your sin did to Christ and the fact that if it were not for you, okay, think, think of yourself as the only one ever to have lived. Christ still would have had to die because of your sin. See how heinous your sin is before a holy God and consider, consider what you did to your Savior. But also recognize that you are free from the judgment if you put your faith in Christ. Hey, when you recognize or when you think about the judgment that you deserve as a result of your sin, you don't have to, you don't have to uh, continually um, meditate on that to the point where you become in despair, but you should be grieved about it and it should cause you to turn to Christ and put your faith in Him in the sense that you recognize that Christ, there is no way that I can do enough goodness to be accepted before you. Even my smallest of sins deserves your utter and ultimate wrath. Be fearful of judgment, yes, but trust in Jesus Christ that He has the power over judgment because He's taken your place. Number four, Christian, take heart. It may be unclear on this earth what God is doing. It may not seem fair when you consider all that is going on in the world around you. It certainly is a struggle. And when you see the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering, it doesn't seem to make sense. But when judgment comes, it will be clear who accepted the Lord and who did not. Right now, the wheat and the tares are growing up together and it's very difficult to determine which one is, is a believer and which one is not. But at the great day of judgment, when harvest time comes, the wheat will be separated from the tares and the tares will be burned up. So it will be clear who is and who is not. And so that means as believers, you should not grow weary in the race. Don't stop focusing on Jesus Christ. Don't turn away from the living God. Keep overcoming. Keep fighting the good fight. Christ has won the victory over sin and death that is at the center of your struggles. It's only a matter of time before it's evident to all and where all people recognize that God is just and that the Christian life is the way we ought to live. So persevere all the way until death and finish strong like our dear Sister Betty did. Let's pray. Father, we do admit that this passage does shake us to consider that if we turn away from You, that we will be deserving of Your judgment. But we thank You that our hope is not in our own righteousness not even in our own perseverance. We do need to persevere, but our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in Him and His finished work. That we need nothing less. We have no other argument. We have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus Christ died for me and for us. So we pray that You'd help us not to go away from here focusing on what we should not be, but, we should, but that we would focus on the wrath that was spared us 
the judgment that was taken from us as a result of what Christ did for us. And we pray also that we would take seriously our own sin, that we would never become complacent in the Christian life, that we would recognize that warnings are actually designed to help us stay where we are, not to remove our assurance of salvation, but to to help us to see the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of judgment, and the need for all to turn in faith to Jesus Christ. We pray that You would give us wisdom as we consider these things, as we meditate on them. May we not grow weary in well-doing. May we take heart, continue on in this race and this life, that in this creation, this world that is groans for that time when all will be made right, when justice will be done and will be seen to be done, when You will prove Yourself worthy of the the glory and the honor that You have. Lord, give us faith to, to be able to see that now as clearly as we can. And until that day when our faith is made sight, we pray that You'd help us to persevere. Help us to encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today so that we do not get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. May we together May we work together to build one another up in our most holy faith. May we encourage one another in the doctrines of the faith. May we, may we help others see the own, uh, their sin for what it is. May we see our own sin for what it is. May you use people here in this church to do that for us. We want to be pleasing to You in all that we do. We don't want to take for granted the grace that has been given to us. We don't want to treat it like these apostates did as a license for immorality so that we would deny You in our actions even though with our lips we accept You. We want to follow You in all that we do. And so we need Your grace because we understand, as Jude has said two times, that that it is Jesus Christ that keeps us till the end. And so I pray that You would accomplish the work that You started in us and that You would strengthen our faith as a result of what we have learned and what we've thought about this evening. May Your Spirit continue to convict us of our sin and to turn us from it, to turn us toward You and toward Your Word, we pray. Give us strength now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.